What's up, horror fans? Welcome back to Horror Struck, a horror commentary podcast where we look at the genre through the lens of a diehard fan and of a scaredy cat. I am Riley Ott. I am joined by my co-host and best friend, Cecilia Talbert. This week, we took a look at the 1992 film Candyman, directed by Bernard Rose. Spoiler warnings for 1992's Candyman. There will be many spoilers. Woo! Hi, Riley! Hello! What's up? I thought I'd... Start with something different than a sigh. I thought you were trying to shock me into waking up. No, I'm I'm Ric Flair. Woo! Is he a wrestler? Yes. Did he die? No. no. Are you sure? <laughs> Who died? Did someone just die? I mean, Christopher Plummer died yesterday. That sucked. But wrestler-wise, I don't know. There was a wrestler that died back in December from a lung disease that they made sure they wanted everyone to know was not COVID. Oh, all right. Have you watched anything that is not wrestling related? I sent you a a Marco Polo of my reaction to this really scary movie I watched called The Queen of Black Magic. It's written by the guy who directed Impetigore. It scared the shit out of me. It was so good, though. Yeah, I don't know what was going on in that movie, but it sounded terrifying. It's on Shudder, so if anybody has Shudder, I highly recommend it. It was so good. Pretty bloody, pretty gruesome, lots of good scares. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, no, thank you. Let's see, other than that, I watched Black Bear. I know you watched Black Bear. Oh, yeah, Black Bear was awesome. Yeah, Black Bear was good. I really enjoyed that. Aubrey Plaza deserves all of the awards. Or just, you know, something other than the Prom and James Corden deserves some awards. Yeah, the Golden Globe nominations came out. They are bad. Riley and I didn't even realize they were out. Our friend Brandon texted it to us. It's just, it's a joke at this point. Yeah. They're just for funsies. Just to have some drinks too. Have you watched anything else? I know I've talked to you recently, so you know basically everything. I watched Ouija, Origin of Evil, and I watched Hellfest. Oh, you know what? I did watch something very recently. We watched it last night. We watched The Invisible Man. Oh, it's so good. I'm so glad you watched it. It was okay. It was fine. Just okay for you? I like the interpretation of The Invisible Man, and Elizabeth Moss is so great. Oh, she was incredible. If it had been anyone else in that movie, it would have fallen apart immediately, but she carried that thing. I liked 70% of the movie, and there was just one chunk in the middle that it just got so unbelievable at one point. I don't know if this is going to be able to tie together well enough. I liked the scene at the end when she's, spoilers for Invisible Man, the scene towards the end where she is at like the hospital and she keeps trying to warn everybody and then he just keeps invisibly killing everybody. Yeah, that's kind of where it fell apart for me is when she's breaking out of the hospital. There's cameras all over. They can see like a floating gun and see that she is not in fact murdering people so uh, you kind of have to be on her side at that point anything else you want to talk about Ooh, i watched the new wandavision this morning i know because we keep recording on saturday but and the episodes come out on friday night but oh my god it just keeps getting better and better it got so dark i had seen a spoiler for the end not that it was definitely gonna happen but the thing that happened at the end was probably gonna happen in this season and we talked about it and when it happened even though i knew there was a good chance that it was probably gonna happen i was still like oh my god i'm just so excited i know i started crying i've lost my mind I think them doing a weekly release is smart, because if they had just dumped this all in one weekend, I think everyone would have talked about it for two weeks, and then we would have moved on to the next thing. And then forgotten about it, yeah. 
All right, shall we move on to the main event? Sweets to the sweets. Yeah, whatever the hell that means. It's from Hamlet. Wow, you're so cultured. The only thing from Hamlet I remember is when he's talking to Yorick's skull, just because we have a fake skull and I like to talk to it. I was in two productions of Hamlet, so I remember a little bit. You know what? That's fair. Sweets to the sweet is what the queen says about Ophelia when she like lays flowers on her grave. Oh, that's kind of cute. Anyways, yeah, so be my victim. Let's talk about Candyman. So general thoughts, how did you like the movie? It was good. I I had a nice time watching it. The performances were really good. I didn't realize how, like, racially charged it was because I haven't seen this movie as an adult. The only time I've seen it is seen with all the bees when I was, like, seven. But yeah, it was good. Yeah, I think overall, this is a really, really good horror movie. I think it does a lot of things to subvert what you would consider a slasher. And I don't really know where this movie fits in. Because I think you could say it was a slasher, but I also think you could say it's, like, a ghost story? Is there, like, a whole genre just about urban legends? Because that's just kind of where I've been putting it in my head. Almost, like, folky? Yeah. There are a lot of really, really good elements to this movie. Like, the music is really good. Of course, the acting is really good. I think it's directed pretty well. The script overall is pretty good. I mean, and we'll talk about this more. There are problematic elements to it. Almost everybody nowadays recognizes that. Pretty jarring. And I'm saying this as somebody who is white. I'm going to speak to it as much as I can, but obviously I have not gone through any of the things any African Americans have gone through or anything, so I'm going to speak to this as much as I can. But I think the two most problematic elements of the movie are probably Helen as a white savior, and then, I mean, you could say Candyman goes self to a certain extent, but I think it's mostly when it's involving him is the fact of who he decides to attack, and it's the fact that he's plaguing... (laughs) This, like, poor black community when literally the five-minute drive away are the people whose ancestors were the ones who, like, tortured and killed him. Yeah, it didn't really make sense to attack his own community when they had absolutely nothing to do with his death. Yeah, and I wonder if the reason... Other than Helen being a white savior, because that's a problem. But I wonder if some of the racial problematic elements of this is because the movie doesn't delve far enough into it. I agree with that. I think there should have at least been some more background on who Candyman was as an actual living human. Because we don't know anything about him other than the folktale that they tell us. I think they explored a little more in the sequels. But you pretty much only get that his father was a slave that I think got himself out of slavery by like making really, really good shoes. And then he got into wealth by like learning how to make a bunch of them. And then his son is the actual candy man and he became a painter and he was well educated. He fell in love with a white woman. Because of that, he was killed. And now he punishes other black people, which makes no fucking sense, but we'll, we'll talk about it. 
I have some other issues that we'll eventually get into. Yeah, we'll we'll dive more into Candyman as an actual character, but I think this movie, for the most part, it still holds up. I think it is very different from a lot of horror movies. I do really like the fairy tale aspect of it and the folklore aspect. I think I'm reading more into this movie than they are presenting, if that makes any sense. I think I know what you mean. I almost read Candyman not as a ghost. Okay. But almost as like a force. He reminds me a lot of, in Japanese culture, they have, oh my god, what is it called? It's essentially what like Samara and the girl from the grudge are. Oh, just some kind of like vengeance demon? The vengeance demons. Okay. I think a lot of the grudge because premise of the grudge is if you go into the house this force is gonna get you no matter what it is some people that go into the house do not deserve to die they are just as much of a victim as what started like the curse and like the vengeance demon but it still goes after them it's what reminds me of what Candyman is well that would make sense too because within the cabrini green community it seemed very prevalent that these people all believe in this urban legend and that was kind of what was fueling him was if if you believe in him, that is, yeah, what is manifesting him. Almost like the Slender Man. Yeah, and when you watch movies like Nightmare on Elm Street, it's very similar because Freddy gets his power off of fear. And so if people are afraid of him, he has no power over them. Do you remember the episode of Are You Afraid of the Dark with the guy who was putting fear inside of his soup? <gasps> yes! But if you're not afraid, he can't use your fear to cook soup. Oh my gosh, yes, yes. It's got, it's like Neve Campbell's in that episode. Candyman as a character himself is very confusing character. I think he's very problematic because he was written by a white person and he just perpetuates these stereotypes that we're going to have to address. Even as white people, they were very prevalent. I did not feel comfortable with some of the stuff that was happening. No, yeah. So this movie is based off of a Clive Barker's story. And Clive Barker, I think, also produced it. I tried to find the short story. I cannot find it. Me too. I couldn't find it. Apparently, the difference is the story takes place in, I think, Liverpool, but it's based on social classes as opposed to race. So I guess it works a little better in that version of the story. That makes sense. I feel like that's more relatable because you can be any race and still be in a different economic class. Social class is not as complicated as race in America. This whole country is falling apart. Who knows anymore? Shall we jump into the movie? Yeah, let's just do it. The movie begins um, with a kind of God's eye camera shot following cars. It looked like a Frogger screen. <laughs> looked like I was playing Frogger. The problem was the shot itself was pretty. And I read that shot was really innovative for the time. They actually had to like go up in a helicopter and shoot it. What ruins it is the weird actual like credits. Like the written credits are going across like a PowerPoint. Yeah, it's really ugly. The font is bad and also the weird sliding in and out at each direction, it's hard to look at. But the music by Philip Glass is absolutely beautiful. I love the score. It's so good. Okay, so I listened to some of it before we started because I, I know you always talk about the music. It is really good, but it reminds me of like... 
if I were to walk into a French cathedral right now and a choir was singing, that's what it would sound like. It's almost like you as a viewer are looking down upon this world that's being built for you. I think the score is very fantastical and it does almost sound like a lullaby. I really like it as a choice. I think the tone of this movie would be very different if they had a different type of music playing. Like, could you imagine like a rock score underneath? There's just something so ethereal about this music. And it's so simple that I think it works really well. No, I agree. Especially the, like, music box theme that they do. It is, like, a fairy tale. It's got fairy tale elements in it. And I think if it were anything more modern, it would take you out of the story. An urban legend is essentially just a fairy tale. It's like a version of modern fairy tale and folklore. Do you know that Philip Glass hated this movie? Oh, well, he's got terrible taste. What else? His name is very familiar. What else has he... I guess I could look because I have him on Spotify. Yeah, he's done um, The Hours. I'm pretty sure he did the music for The Truman Show. You know, I've never watched the entirety of The Truman Show. Oh, I really like The Truman Show. It's so good. Matt, when we lived together, he and I got really high and turned on The Truman Show. Oh, no. And he freaked out. So he turned the movie off and then made me make cookies with him instead. And they were all like half baked and doughy. Like, Matt, what are we doing? (laughs) That's funny. I love Philip Glass. His music is always just so pretty. He didn't like it when it first came out because, like, he viewed it as, like, like a low-budget slasher film. I don't view it that way at all, I think. It's actually surprising when you think about it. There really aren't that many deaths in this movie. And you only see one. I know which one we definitely see on screen. Because the only one you actually see is the psychiatrist. So really, Candyman only kills... He only kills two people. He kills her friend, and then he kills the psychiatrist. He kills two people and a dog. I'm very mad at the Candyman. I'm still not convinced, though, that it wasn't Helen under trance. I don't know how true this is, because I read it on, like, a YouTube comment, but someone said that in the scenes that Virginia Madsen was supposed to be under this kind of trance, that they used an actual hypnotist and, like, put her in some sort of hypnosis, and she does not remember filming a couple of those scenes. Oh, it's true. She went to a hypnotist. Essentially, the hypnotist gave the director, like, a word he could use to activate her trance. Okay. I don't know what interview it was, but she said that she realized that there was a day of filming she couldn't remember, and that's when she looked at looked at her director, Bernard Rose, and was like, we're not doing this anymore. Yeah, that's fair. That would make me very uncomfortable. That would probably help with the B scene. Oh, that would help a lot with the B scene. Actually, yeah, put me under a trance. No, a hypnotist told me and my mom once that apparently you can't hypnotize people who have OCD. So I'm immune to being hypnotized, I guess. It has to do something with wanting to be in control, right? Well, I think probably because of all of the intrusive thoughts, like I can't control them, so... Yeah, it doesn't probably keep you in a trance and like snaps you out of it. Makes sense. Yeah, which is fine. I mean, it's probably for the best that you can't be hypnotized. Yeah, just in case. (laughs) Oh, oh, the one thing I wanted to say about Philip Glass was that I think he's kind of come around. I don't think he views it the same way anymore, especially since apparently he is still getting royalty checks from it. That's fair. If I were still getting paid from it, I, I would have some warm feelings. All right, anyway, so credits happen, and then we hear Candyman for the first time, who is played by Tony Todd, who is amazing. You get his voiceover over a swarm of bees. They will say that I have shed innocent blood. What's blood for 
is not for shedding. With my hook for a hand, I'll split you from your groin to your gullet. I came for you. He was not joking. He gave that psychiatrist a new bottle. He was not joking. Did not mean to make you laugh so hard during that scene. <laughs> a brand new bottle. I think it was also oh. shocking. <laughs> it was pretty funny even before you said that. So I was kind of laughing already. No, Tony Todd, you're absolutely correct. He is incredible. And he has just got that like big booming voice. He's got a sexy voice. It was an intense way to start this movie. And just Chicago exploding with bees is pretty terrifying. From your groin to your gullet is another Shakespeare reference. Wow, we should have studied Shakespeare before this movie. Well, I think the point is, it's to show you how intelligent he is as a character. Because when you learn his backstory, he was very well educated. I still think they should have explored that a lot more. It makes him a whole new type of slasher because i mean freddy's pretty smart but i don't think he's anywhere near as smart as Candyman is Candyman's like a book smart nerd serial killer and then like freddy and jason they're the street smart bullies freddy is kind of like draco malfoy and jason is kind of like either crab or goyle just like a non-verbal henchman well then who's Candyman if we're in the harry potter universe dumbledore <laughs> I would almost think Snape without the weirdness. Oh, okay. Um, Like the tragic character, but without the whole like, I pine for a girl who didn't love me for 20 years, but I treated little kids like trash. Yeah, fuck Snape. Don't bully a little boy because he has your crush's eyes, you fucking weirdo. How do we always end up talking about Harry Potter and not what we're supposed to talk about? (laughs) After we get our voice introduction to Candyman, we get to hear some urban legends. There is a student who tells the story of somebody, I think, in, like, Indiana that was killed by Candyman. And so you find out that our lead, Helen, and her friend slash um, colleague are essentially working on this paper about urban legends. Which, this is interesting, because Candyman is only supposed to be in Caperny Green, but yet this person has heard a story that has happened in Indiana that involves Candyman? I think that's just kind of the point of them saying this is how urban legends work. Because I remember being a kid and people saying things about Candyman and Bloody Mary and before knowing the full story of this film. I was like, okay, it's an urban legend. You say his name five times. He appears and kills you. So that probably just word of mouth traveled to them and got twisted into, you know, this brand new urban legend. Yeah, it's like the power of urban legends. But yeah, you essentially get the quote-unquote basics to Candyman and how his urban legend works, which is you need to look in a mirror and say Candyman five times, and then he'll show up and kill you. That's pretty much how he is supposed to work according to the urban legend. He doesn't exactly work like that in this movie. Yeah, I guess he doesn't, because he never like instantly shows up. I don't think he really cares about any of that. His big thing is he doesn't like when people don't believe in him. That's when he gets pissed. Right, because believing in him is what is keeping him around. Yeah. So I guess every once in a while he would just have to show up and be like, no, I'm real. Let me murder someone so that you're all still scared of me. That's why I keep getting like mirror images to the grudge because the new series that's on Netflix 
one of the big things that happens in it that you find out is that one of the only people that hasn't been killed is the realtor who knows about the curse but keeps bringing people in anyways. It just works like the same way. The only reason that the curse isn't killing him is because he is essentially like keeping it alive. But then why is he killing people in those housing projects? Because they're the ones who are closest to the story and the ones who keep telling it and passing it on. Is he actually doing it? Everyone in Caprini Green is really afraid of him. That's why the guy that you see later who calls himself Candyman, he's like one of the gang leaders. I mean, I feel like the only reason Candyman isn't big, like, how dare you use my name, is because he's keeping the fear alive. So there is a chance that maybe it was him or somebody saying they're Candyman who went in and did those vicious things. Because those people are way too afraid of him, at least in the way they portrayed in the movie, that I don't think any of those people would have been like, I'm in the bathtub, I'm not afraid of Candyman, let's say it five times. Because he only goes after people who don't believe in him. Okay, I guess that makes sense. So like when they're talking about Ruthie Jean. Because I think they even say at one point that sometimes urban legends come around, like especially Candyman, is that people can't rationalize that people could just do terrible things so it makes sense that there's this malevolent force right or just a way to like explain it to your kids to kind of scare them yeah like in gilmore girls when lorelei says the stove is the devil's hands oh my god no that that's that's exactly right exactly like lorelei gilmore said like there's a serial killer outside don't go play in the streets at night So yeah, Helen and Bernadette are postgrads that are writing a paper on urban legends. Helen goes to meet her husband, who is a professor at whatever university they're at. This is when you meet the real villain of the story. Trevor. (laughs) Trevor is the worst. I hate him. Trevor. I feel like that needs to go on my list of men names I don't trust. What kind of grown man is just named Trevor? I don't know anyone named Trevor. It just sounds like such a frat boy name. Her husband is the worst. So she, Helen goes into his lecture because she needs to talk to him, catches the end of his lecture. And he's giving a lecture about urban legends, which is fine. But then when she goes down to talk to him, you told me you weren't going to give this lecture yet because I am trying to do research and what you have done has poisoned the well of subjects I could question. Because he essentially has made them believe that urban legends are all in your head. She's trying to do a study on it, but if people are aware of it, she's not going to get good research or accurate research. And his response is so dickish. He's just like, well, that's my lesson plan. I can't change it now. Like, sir, you're a terrible teacher if you have no other things to talk about. Gaslights are so hard because he's like hitting on the student, or at least the student looks like she's flirting with him, saunters away, and she's like, ah, what are you doing there? And he's like, don't worry about it. You think I would honestly have an affair yes your name is trevor no one trusts you he's terrible and then later you can see he obviously doesn't respect her because they go to dinner with one of their colleagues and he's just being such a sexist dickhead and trevor's like oh no it's fine shut up yeah he doesn't stand up for her at all yeah that's so shitty and stops her from standing up for herself (sighs) i hate trevor and i'm so glad he dies at the end he should have died sooner 
after this, Helen goes to type out some of her interviews that she had taken that day. And she gets to meet one of the cleaning ladies at the university. She overhears the interview talking about Candyman. She says, oh, I know about Candyman. I've heard of this legend. So does my friend Kitty. So she goes out in the hallway and she's like, come here, friend Kitty. Let's talk to this white lady about Candyman. Essentially, this is how Helen learns about the story of Ruthie Jean, who is a woman who lived in Caprini Green while she was taking a bath thought she heard somebody coming through the walls of her apartment. She called 911 twice. They didn't respond either times. And then like the next day she was found dead in her apartment. Oh, and she was killed with a hook. So that's delightful. Okay, so the cleaning ladies told them about that, right? I thought Vanessa Williams did for some reason. When they go to Caprini Green, and Marie tells them, because she's like her actual neighbor, so she tells them about hearing it and the fact that she also called 911 and still no one showed up. Yeah, and that unfortunately still happens today when police get calls from downtown where I live. Because it's such a highly populated black community, they just don't show up at all or don't show up for hours. I hate how relatable this film is still. Being 30 years old, so many of these problems have not been fixed. Where I live in Arizona, we have a large indigenous population, so the Navajo Nation is nearby. I have a co-worker whose wife is Navajo. If he is not with her, and if she gets pulled over by the cops, they are extremely racist to her. Everything's awful. Also, I don't know anything about Chicago, so I didn't know that Caprini Green was a real neighborhood. I just found that out today. I hate that Chicago has become more a cautionary tale than a city, because anytime anyone brings up racism- Fucking awful. And then they use the phrase black on black crime, which is so inherently racist. It's almost as racist when someone goes, I'm not racist, but- But I'm about to say something racist, yeah. Helen and Bernadette are at Helen's condo. Helen pretty much explains that the condo and building that she's at was built to be public housing. Like Section 8 housing. They were like, no, no, no. When they built it, it's too nice. So they decided to just plaster over the cinder block and sell it to rich white people. This is how she finds out that the same people who built the high rises in Caprini Green also built her building and about how they probably use the same layout. She takes Bernadette to her bathroom and then says, look at this. And she pulls her mirror out of the wall and you learn there is no wall between her and the other apartment. She could just climb into the other apartment. Her poor friend is so concerned during all of this. And I am on Bernadette's side because Helen was just acting so irresponsibly. And the whole time she's like, um, should you be doing that? What about your neighbors? She's like, I don't think anybody lives there. It's fine. Helen is way too brave. She has no fear. She's got that white privilege. She's brave to the point of stupidity. Okay, yes, you're a white person brave, but shouldn't you be female scared? You would think. Dude, if my mirror fell out of my wall and I realized I could go into my neighbor's apartment, I would not just be like, isn't that quirky? I would move. Either we're putting up some more wall or I am moving. This is awful. What if a crazy person moves in next door? Or what if somebody climbs through and murders you while you're in your bathtub with a hook? I mean, that could also happen. R.I.P. Ruthie Jean. Do they ever talk to, like, the police or anything about this? No. They never say, hey, we don't think Ruthie Jean was murdered by a crazy mirror man? Did you guys look into this at all? I don't think they 
care. At least Helen doesn't care. Bernadette just seems to be kind of along for the ride. Oh, and you can also tell that Helen is irresponsible and far too brave when they decide to both say Candyman in the mirror after finding this secret hole. They decide, let's test out the urban legend and we'll say Candyman five times. But Bernadette doesn't say it. They do all four together. And then Helen looks deep into the mirror and goes, Candyman. Like she's taunting him. And then she looks at Bernadette and she's like, you bitch, how dare you not say it with me? She didn't say that. I really liked their friendship. They were pretty cute. I liked Bernadette a lot. And apparently that actress, Casey Lemons, directed Harriet. Helen says Candyman five times. But nothing happens. Not yet. Not yet. Uh So... Helen and Bernadette go to do some on-the-ground research, and so they start driving to Caperny Green, and once again, Helen, no fear, Bernadette has like six pepper sprays. She is a little freaked out. She looks at Helen, she's like, why do you have us dressed like this? We look like cops. Yeah, which the guys outside of the apartment building pick up on immediately. They're like, we don't recognize you. You guys are dressed like cops. We're going to hassle you until you hopefully go away. And I don't know if their plan was to actually interview anybody because they kind of just stumble onto Anne-Marie. But I feel like you wouldn't want to stick out. You want to fit in with the people you're interviewing. Right, like you should have contacted someone and had them come meet you and be like, no, these guys are with me. And then go inside so that you're not being chased off. But I guess Helen's just probably like, if they think I'm a cop, they won't come at me. Because I'm a white lady and we all love cops, right? I feel like they could have gotten these interviews without having to go bother all the people in this housing project, though. They clearly don't have any sort of, like, interviews or anything set up. So were they only coming to look at this crime scene? Yeah, it seemed like it, because they just kind of take pictures, and then they're like, okay, time to go, but happen to run into Anne-Marie before they're leaving. And I think it's really interesting that they did film all the exteriors, I think at Caperny Green, right? That's what I read, yeah, is that the outside scene with the the guys hassling them and then the inside hallways at least and the stairwell were all the actual building the production team had like met with the gangs to be like hey will you help us out filming this and like they played extras in it (laughs) no i bet that was kind of fun yeah and i guess they didn't really have any problems because of that i think there was like one incident where they they found like a stray bullet like went through one of their production vans but it didn't seem like it was done on purpose well i'm glad nothing else happened i'm a little bothered by the fact that there's a scene later where bernadette comes back and she meets jake he takes her to the bathroom and there's all this trash everywhere which i guess there would have been trash in the other scenes but they brought that trash in there wasn't any trash there they're like hmm what do poor black people have around them trash wait when jake takes helen to the bathroom you said Bernadette, so I was like, is this a different scene that, like... Oh, did I say Bernadette? Yeah, I wasn't sure if it was a Sorry. scene that, like, didn't make the movie. I misspoke. I meant Helen. <laughs> okay, no, 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 that makes sense. Yeah, that's kind of... <sighs> like, black people don't clean up after themselves. Yeah, that's that's gross. I'm like, yeah, of course, that's Hollywood for you. Like, the cleaning ladies are busy cleaning up after white people. They don't have time to clean up after themselves. They get 
harassed by the gangs because the gang thinks they're police, so they call up, send off a signal so everybody knows the cops are there. Yeah, they're trying to protect the residents. Which is great, Helen, if you want to interview anybody. Helen. As they're making their way to Ruthie's apartment, they do get a quick glance of Anne-Marie. Do they knock on the door? Probably she either heard the guys shouting or she was going to go out into the hall and then saw them and was like, no thanks. Helen and Bernadette go into Ruthie Jean's, like, abandoned crime scene apartment. They go to the bathroom, of course. They take out the mirror. And then Helen, brave as can be, is like, I'm gonna, I'm crawling through this small hole and I'm gonna go into the other apartment to see if I guess can find any evidence. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know why she went in there either. And also, how did she know that that apartment wasn't occupied? She was just going to knock down the mirror and maybe someone was in there, like, taking a bath? Would have been really rude. Could you imagine? You're just, like, in your bathroom pooping and then your mirror just falls out and there's someone just standing there? (laughs) Just some random white lady crawling through the walls. Good way to help you poop. Can I wipe first? Oh, did you read that this whole mirror thing is not a made-up thing? I can never live in an apartment building again. What do you mean? They just build houses like that? Yeah, this was not something that they made up for the movie. While they were, while the director was researching the film, he learned that actually a series of murders in Chicago were committed this way. What the fuck? I'm glad my bathroom mirror is just attached to the outside of the house. No one's getting through the bricks. Huh. I've never thought to try to pull my mirror out of the wall. Maybe I should try. I think you should definitely try. What's on the opposite side of your bathroom? Uh, there's an apartment. Yeah, definitely. Pull it down. See who's over there. No, I I don't think there would be anything because our full mirror is like just a full mirror. Like I can see how it's attached. So how do you know it's not like a double sided mirror and someone's watching you? Oh, because I've done the I've done the trick. Isn't the trick just like turn off the lights? Uh, no, it's you put your finger against it. If your finger touches, so your reflection touches your actual finger, then it is a two way mirror because it should never look like it actually touches. That's weird. I've never heard that. But yeah, I see what you're saying because when you touch a mirror, it doesn't. Look look like you're actually touching it. You can see like the reflection. Yeah, my dad told me that once. He was like, as a girl, you should know this. Anytime you go in a dressing room, check. So I do it every time. That's so smart. Not that I do it anymore because... Because there are no dressing rooms. Nope. Wow. All right. So Helen crawls through the mirror hole into the other apartment. Bernadette is smart, decides to stay behind. You do get that really beautiful shot of her crawling through essentially Candyman's mouth, which is super cool and so effective. Puts this whole like chill over your body. Yeah, I think it was my favorite shot in the whole movie. I could imagine that somebody painting that for me and me hanging it up. And punching a big hole in the wall so that you can climb through his mouth too, like an amusement park. I meant more of like that screenshot somebody taking oh, okay. it and like me like framing it or having someone like do like a painted version of it that makes more sense she's taking a bunch of pictures um she finds the razor blade candy which i think is literally only there because it's an urban legend do you think that this movie is what started that or did it happen before because i know there's only been like one case of that ever happening and it was like an uncle put razor blades into one of his relatives or i guess nephew or niece's candy on halloween no i think this has always been an urban legend i think they're just making a nod to it just kind of a cautionary tale of like don't take candy from strangers because you never know they could be weird except on halloween then you should do it when that's literally the main goal is get as much candy from strangers as you possibly can do you think the 
candy belongs to like the gang leader candy man like that's his calling card is he leaves like a candy like with a razor blade in it oh i don't know i guess i just assumed that like at this point actual candy man was following her around and just kind of wanted to leave little breadcrumbs or like spooks for her. i didn't think of that that's really interesting though because if they had known this apartment was vacant they could have just had a little hole in the wall hideout spot yeah exactly yeah she runs out of film on her camera, and that's when she goes back, scares the shit out of Bernadette with the jump scare. She just, like, puts her head back through, and she's like, hello! The jump scares were all really well done. They were they were pretty funny. And that is when Anne-Marie shows up. Kind of like, what are you people doing here? And then she's eventually warms up to them, and she's like, I was Ruthie Jean's neighbor. Come into my apartment, and I'll tell you my story. I wonder if, because Anne-Marie was one of the people who called the police, that she was warming up to him because she was finally like, wow, someone actually wants to look into this and cares about Ruthie Jean. Because she does, she switches really quickly. When they go to her apartment, she has a speech. She does say that. She's like, most people just don't care about us. Most white people who come here just want to try to like put their own narrative onto us. Like say that we're all like addicted to crack and all this stuff. Yeah, and they're actually like reaching out and trying to talk to them like human beings. Helen, Bernadette, the other academics, they're still pretty detached. Like this is a story for them. I don't know how much... They actually see the people of Caprini Green as people. Right, like they're all still pretty ignorant when it comes to these lower income people. They're a study for them and... Instead of them being people, they're subjects, which is upsetting. And then it brings up the whole, like, the Tuskegee experiments and, like, how fucking awful that was. Just these, like, white academics who just don't give a shit. Huh. I guess I didn't view it like that, but no, you're absolutely right. Definitely still some detachment from Helen's world into this, and she's almost looking at it like a game or an experiment. Helen hears about these horrific crimes, or at least the one horrific crime at this point, and she doesn't really seem to be upset about it. She seems excited about it. I wonder how Helen would feel if this had happened to her neighbor rather than Anne-Marie's neighbor. (gasps) She would have been so sad. Then again, the police probably would have shown up for her neighbor, so. Yeah, that's true. This is the point where Anne-Marie tells a story because Ruthie Jean was her next door neighbor. She heard her screaming. She even called 911. Still no one showed up, which is super sad. And then speaking of shitty academics, we cut from here to Helen, Bernadette, Trevor, and this other dick, I think his name is Philip, having dinner. And the time where you could just smoke in a restaurant. Yeah, that was very upsetting. I just kept thinking, like, how bad that restaurant must smell if I were trying to eat food and everyone's just blowing cigarette smoke all over. Camera-wise, it looked the haziness made it look kind of cool, but I cannot imagine how gross that would be. Yeah, it's so bizarre that, like, even when we were alive, there were still smoking sections in restaurants. Yeah, so Helen kind of gets in a fight with Philip. I think he's one of... Trevor's colleagues. He's just very flippant to both Helen and Bernadette and this makes Helen mad so she's just like well we have a really good story baking but we've only been to Caprini Green once so and he's like ah Caprini Green you mean Candyman country? Yeah this guy is really only there to be a sexist dick and then give us this big exposition dump about the Candyman backstory. Candyman was the son of a slave. His father had amassed a considerable fortune from designing a device for the mass producing of shoes after the Civil War. Candyman had been sent to all the best schools and had grown up in polite society. He had a prodigious talent as an artist. 
and was much sought after when it came to the documenting of one's wealth and position in society in a portrait. Well, it was in this latter capacity that he was commissioned by a wealthy landowner to capture his daughter's virginal beauty. Well, of course, they fell deeply in love and she became pregnant. Poor candy man. Father executed a terrible revenge. He paid a pack of brutal hooligans to do the deed. They chased Candyman through the town to Cabrini Green, where they proceeded to saw off his right hand with a rusty blade. And no one came to his aid. But this was just the beginning of his ordeal. Nearby, there was an apiary. Dozens of hives filled with hungry bees. They smashed the hives and stole the honeycomb and smeared it over his prone, naked body. Candyman was stung to death by the bees. They burnt his body on a giant pyre and then scattered his ashes over Cabrini Green. What a way to go. This is where the movie kind of took a turn for me, because at no point during this story or after we learn it am I ever supposed to feel sympathetic for this man. But this is a horrible, tragic story of what they did to him. It almost frames it as if he deserves it. But I know nothing about his backstory other than what they tell me. I know nothing about this relationship other than what they are portraying. And then after I learn about this, when it gets to him following Helen around, they almost treat it like he is this predatory black man preying on this white woman trying to steal all our white women or whatever the stereotype with black men there is. And it made me very uncomfortable. I still had a lot of sympathy for him. But I think you're definitely right. If you watch the documentary Horror Noir that's on Shudder, which is all about like black horror cinema, there was somebody in it who spoke when they spoke about Candyman as groundbreaking as it was, because it was other than Candyman. Can you think of any other black slasher villains? There are so few black horror movies in general that, no, I can think of a handful of movies, let alone actual characters. It's very reminiscent of King Kong. King Kong is like a black allegory for how white people view the black male. He is going after this pretty white blonde lady. And so it's very reminiscent of that. Oh. And I thought that was fascinating. Okay. Because as a white person, I had never realized that I'm like, oh my God. Yeah, that's kind of what King Kong is, isn't it? Yeah, I never realized that. It's very upsetting to learn things like that and learn that I didn't realize them because of my own privilege. I think he's also really interesting because he doesn't show up until, what, like halfway through the movie? I think that works for the movie's credit, though, because it kind of shows you that maybe Helen is starting to believe in him more and more now that she's talking to these people with firsthand experiences that do believe in this urban legend. He doesn't show up until she's finally like, maybe this is real. He's such a prevalent part of the movie that even when he's not there, he's always there. Just like Jesus. I do still think Candyman is a sympathetic character, but I feel like the fact that he is kind of this terror for the Caprini Green community takes away from it. 
I think what they are hinting at, which is fucking awful, is that the Caprini Green community has, at least their ancestors, have transgressed because none of them got up to save the living Candyman when he was, like, essentially being lynched. Which is a terrible victim blaming. I don't mean to go this dark, but, like, with the Holocaust, when they're like, well, I don't understand why all those Jewish people just didn't fight back. There weren't that many guards. And I'm like, really? Yeah. Or they're just like, I don't understand why those slaves put up with it. There were more of them than the owners. I'm like, are you kidding me? But that's what this reminds me of. I know we talked about it when Ty and Hannah were on. The woman who basically was like screaming out for help and everyone was like, well, someone else will do it. That's what people who say things like that remind me of. Helen decides, I'm going to go back to Caprini Green because I want to talk more to Anne-Marie. She goes to Caprini Green and that is when she meets Jake who is a little boy who's probably I don't, six? I don't know. This, this one I couldn't tell. <laughs> this is becoming a yeah. new game. <laughs> he's young. He, he's yeah, young, he did though. seem he young. He looks like he's like six or seven. It was hard to tell because he had like real baggy clothes on and they didn't show him close up for a while. And he seems really articulate. So I was like, oh, he's probably like nine or ten. And then you zoom in and he's got this little baby face. I'm like, ugh, maybe he's like seven. I don't know. He looks young. This actor too, um, Dewan Guy, they called him One Take Jake because he was so good, they wouldn't have to do more than one take with him, which I found was very fun. That's probably really rare with child actors too. Jake tells her that he knows who Candyman is, but he's very afraid of Candyman. And Helen's like, well, you can talk to me. I promise I won't tell anybody. Says that he knows where Candyman is. And she's like, oh, take me to him. And then she kidnaps him. Helen is so bravely stupid. And then they walk down to the bathrooms. Jake tells her a very upsetting story about how there was a kid around his age that essentially got castrated in the bathroom and he died from his injuries. I believe the line Jake says is they found it floating in the toilet. Can't fix that. You're better off dead. I don't know if you're better off dead, but I feel like if that did happen, all the blood loss, you would end up dead. And he says that Candyman did it. And there's a chance that gang leader Candyman did it, which is fucked up. Either way, there's absolutely no reason that this little boy should know that story or know that many details about this story. No, no. Uh, Helen, being her brave, stupid self, tells Jake, wait outside, I'm going inside to take pictures. She finds a toilet full of bees. And then she flushes them down, which I thought was so funny. As you do. What would you do in that situation, though? Uh, I would just leave. I get, yeah, close the lid and leave. Maybe don't flush them, because I feel like more bees would just come up or it would clog the toilet. And then she gets to meet Candyman. The not real Candyman, the gang leader Candyman, who comes in. He says, we hear you're looking for Candyman, bitch, and then punches her in the eye or, like, hits her with something. Cuts to the police station. <laughs> Where there's a lineup and they're having all the guys say, We hear you're looking for Candyman, bitch. And she knows exactly who it is. So good for Helen for locking up a gang leader, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, the detective's happy because they couldn't find anyone to testify. So they're happy that Helen got beat up so she can testify. So this white lady gets beat up by this guy. The police must have responded immediately to this. But this poor woman gets murdered in her apartment and no one comes to help her. It's almost like America is full of racism. It's almost like cops don't care about black people. What? I know, it's brand new information. It hasn't been going on since the literal beginning of establishing the police. They were invented to collect slaves. Fuck you. 
Helen and Jake have a conversation outside. Jake is freaked out because he's just like, you talked about Candyman? Oh, Candyman's gonna get me. And she's essentially just like, he's not real. I caught him. So some time has passed. Helen thinks everything is fine. She has saved the day. White savior Helen. She's in a parking garage. As she's about to get in her car, she hears someone calling her name. Do I know you? No. No. But you doubted me. You were not content with the stories. So I was obliged to come. Be my victim. I am the writing on the wall, the whisper in the classroom. Without these things, I am nothing. So now I must shed innocent blood. Come with me. Candyman is showing up to her now. Essentially, because she's gotten the gang leader Candyman arrested, I think people at Caperni Green are starting to lose faith in him as an urban legend. They think, oh, maybe it was just this gang leader just doing these terrible things and it's not like this supernatural force. Right, like no one's around to push his narrative anymore. Yeah, Helen goes into this trance and then Helen kind of blacks out for a second and she wakes up covered in blood. Okay, this scene though. This was real good. This is just where everything kind of went bonkers. So Helen wakes up covered in blood, is in a bathroom, opens the door. She's in Anne Marie's apartment. Anne Marie's dog has been killed. Blood everywhere, including the crib where Antony was. But he's missing. And Anne Marie is there screaming because her baby is missing and there's blood in his crib. And she looks over and sees Helen and charges her. Helen, when she left the bathroom, had picked up a random butcher's knife she found on the ground covered in blood. She's like, I guess I'll defend myself. And so when she gets attacked by Anne Marie, she like slices her arm. And that's when the cops come in and catch her essentially red handed. <laughs> You can assume that she is being framed by Candyman, not only for the death of this dog, but for probably killing the baby. It doesn't look good, but they haven't found a body. What gets me about this scene? Think about those roles if they were reversed. If they had walked in and Anne-Marie was on top of Helen with a meat cleaver and a beheaded dog was in the corner, they would have shot that woman immediately. Oh yeah, 100%. They would not have arrested her. She would have been dead. No, they arrest her. They take her to the police station. They let her take a shower. They have her call her husband. Like, yeah, they're not being super friendly with her. But in an alternate reality, she would have been dead. But she's getting different treatment. Absolutely. I do really like the scene where it cuts from them catching her to her having to turn in like all of her clothes because it's all evidence. It was a great scene. Yeah, there's something like darkly comedic about it. Okay. It's like both sad and comedic. And I feel like the only reason it's comedic is because of the actress who plays the cop who is there to take her clothes. Oh, just her like deadpan, like I've done this before. Just give me your bra. Yeah, she's just like, give me your brassiere. Raise your right breast. I mean, to be in a job like that, though, you would kind of just have to turn everything off because Helen is hysterical during this. Yeah, so it is also kind of sad and dark because this is kind of what trauma victims go through. Not exactly, but how the rape kit is almost as invasive as the rape itself. And half of them never even get looked at as evidence. So what's the point of doing it? It's just causing more trauma on top of what's already happened. 
Every single system is broken. I We just need to start over. Burn it all down! The cops definitely treat her different, but they're also not very happy with her. One of the cops is like, how can you live with yourself? Because they're like, where's the baby? And she's like, I don't know. Yeah, but once that baby grows up to be a fully grown black man, they're not going to give a shit about him. You're disgusting, you stupid pig. Who am I mad at? Everybody. The world. Yeah, kind of. When Helen goes to make her one phone call, guess who's not home at three in the morning to come pick her up from jail? Cheating whore of a husband. Fucking Trevor. Also, you can tell she's rich because uh, she doesn't go to jail. They must pay her bail and she gets to go home. Oh, I could tell she was rich by that apartment. Her hubby finally shows up. That night, she does have a vision of Antony asleep somewhere in Caperny Green, but she doesn't know where. So she knows that Candyman hasn't killed him. Well, that's good. Yeah, you were so glad at the end. You're like, thank God if he had killed this baby and a dog. That's the worst thing you can do. The dog already hit me pretty hard. They take her home. She's taking a bath, like trying to get over the trauma. And he's like, hey, I gotta go pick up some work. Wink, wink to us. And then he leaves. Really? You're gonna go fuck your student at a time like this? Yeah, he's stressed. That's the only way he can cope with it. My wife is a murderer. Might as well go see my mistress. While Trevor's gone, Helen starts looking at the pictures that she took at Caperny Green and sees that one of them has Candyman in it behind her, which is terrifying. Oh yeah, was it him or was it just like a shadow? It was the outline of him, but you could definitely tell it was him. Like you couldn't see his face exactly, but it was 100% him. Well, I feel like the hook hand kind of gives it away, so he's hard to mistake for anyone else. I don't know. You know all those hook people. Him and Captain Hook, I think, are the only two I do know. So she sees the picture and then she goes to her mirror and looks in it because she wants to see if she can (laughs) look into Candyman's world. I don't know. She's looking to see if she'll see his reflection in the mirror, I guess. And she doesn't. So she kind of opens the medicine cabinet. Bam! Jump scare. Hook hand goes right through the medicine cabinet. She runs away. All the jump scares were done really well in this movie and I don't usually like a jump scare, but they were very effective. Did you read about this jump scare? No. Uh, it was real. They did not tell Virginia Madsen that this was going to happen. Oh, so that was her genuine reaction. I guess at first, Tony Todd did not want to do it because he thought it was mean, but then the director convinced him to do it, and then he just spent, like, the rest of the time apologizing for it. Oh, no. It's nice to hear that he, at least, is probably a very nice man in contrast to this horrible murderer character. So she gets scared, runs out of her apartment. He is at the end of the hallway, so she has nowhere to go. She runs back inside. He's back in the apartment. That's when he kind of puts her in a trance, and then he does the whole hook-on-the-neck thing. Doing the whole, like, be my victim thing again. Poor Bernadette. Wrong place, wrong time. Shows up to comfort her friend, and when she doesn't get an answer, decides to just walk into the apartment. When I think Helen's trying to warn her, but she's either still stuck in this trance or something's going on where she just isn't loud enough. She's like, Bernadette, he's here, go away. Yeah, she can't scream. It's like Rose and Titanic. It's too cold to scream? She has to get the whistle, because she's like, come back, come back. Helen, like, pass it on the floor and then she wakes back up she's on the floor she's got a knife in her hand not a good sign trevor comes home and finds bernadette's dead body so that's fun she looked very corpsey she looked like she was because they kept talking about people's hair turning white he must call the cops at this point you haven't seen the body he comes home and he looks horrified they like moved her to the bedroom because she must have passed out again she wakes up runs out the place is swarming with police and bernadette's body is just in the middle of the living room and Trevor's sitting on the couch behind her just hanging out they take her to a mental institution 
clearly lost her mind at this point. Up until the point where Candyman kills that psychiatrist, you could definitely interpret this movie as Helen being fucking insane. Yeah, she keeps blacking out and accidentally committing crimes. I mean, I I don't see Candyman do any of it. So who says this isn't just some sort of hallucination on her part? But then that brings into play that we're also perpetuating a stereotype that people with mental illness are dangerous. I don't know. It's just all bad. So Helen is at the mental institution. They like strap her down, leave her, and then Candyman just is floating over her. The scene is shot really well because he's floating above her. He kind of like just descends beside her and almost looks like he's hiding under the bed. And then the, the orderlies come in and sedate her. Oh, is this where he's basically like, hey, I want you to die and come live with me and then I'll just give the baby back and everything will be fine? Yeah, he essentially tells her, like, if you die, I'll let the baby go. But she's very upset because her friend Bernadette was, you know, killed. I was pretty upset by that too. I liked Bernadette. And then you get one of the coolest scenes, Helen going to talk to the psychiatrist. He shows her the video when she was first there. We get to see it as they saw it, which is Candyman is not there. She's just screaming murderer at nothing. And then Helen says, well, you know, I can prove it. And so she looks in the mirror and she says Candyman five times. And at first nothing happens. Doctor's like, see, it's not real. And then blah, 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 blah. You're mine now. Tonight our congregation shall witness a new miracle. Yeah, that's exactly what happens. And then he cuts him a new butthole. I don't know why it was so funny. The way his hook is shaped, that's how he would have to do it. He just hooked in there and just ripped. Yeah, he just hooked him from his butthole to the top of his head. It's so effective. It's so shocking and so bloody. And I feel so bad for Helen. Yeah, having to witness that and for the poor guy, that is a bad way to go. This whole scene is crazy. He kills the doctor. He releases Helen from her like restraints. He goes, whoop. And he goes backwards out the window and it breaks. I mean, the shot's done really well. I just wasn't expecting him to leave like that. He just threw himself out a window. It is a little funny, but I love it. It's just shot so strangely. It's effective still. I just, it's a lot going on at once. And I think that's the point. I think it's supposed to overwhelm you because it's overwhelming Helen. Uh, essentially, he breaks the window so that Helen can crawl out the window, get into another room so she can jump a nurse, steal the nurse's clothes, and then get out of the mental hospital. She goes straight... Does she go from the bridge to Trevor or does she go from the Trevor to the bridge? She goes back home to her condo and the walls are being painted this Pepto-Bismol ugly pink. Stacy, the student, is there. Helen just seems so crazy. She essentially scares the shit out of both of them. And then she reaches a point where she's done terrorizing them and she realizes there's really nowhere for her to go and she leaves. Well, I think she probably would realize like, oh, this is kind of proving their point. Maybe I should calm down. Oh, it's so good though. Everyone in this scene. Like she doesn't even have a weapon, but she seems so threatening. Well, probably because at this point they're like, this woman has murdered several people. She's come unhinged and now she's just escaped from her restraints. I'd be scared of her too if I that was the image I had of her in my head. I felt really bad for the poor mistress girl. She didn't sign up for all this. She's probably just being manipulated by this gross professor. I 100% agree. She does get a little um pretty annoying at the end. No, she's fine. She's just trying to make dinner for a gross new boyfriend. Helen, after having this really tense moment where she's essentially like, really Trevor? And he was like, I didn't think you were ever getting out. So I moved on. 
Got her there. Helen gets mad and she's like, this color is ugly. And she throws a paint can against the wall and leaves. She's right. She's like standing on the bridge, almost like she's going to jump in. And then she decides, I got to go save that baby. So she goes back to Caprini Green. She goes back into Ruthie Jean's apartment. She goes through the hole in the wall where the mirror was. And then she climbs up into another apartment. And it's it's almost like a cathedral. It's almost like the citizens of Caprini Green have like made this cathedral place to worship him. Like a shrine to the candy man. Yeah, like a shrine. Uh, Helen gets to see all the pictures on the wall. So she gets to see him before he became... The Candyman. She turns around and sees Candyman asleep. Do ghosts need to sleep? That's the question. Well, was he actually sleeping or was he like, I'm gonna lay here, close my eyes, so for when she shows up, I seem vulnerable. That makes more sense. Yeah, she grabs a hook and she like comes up on him and he wakes up and then she stabs him, but surprisingly doesn't do anything. He like takes her in his arms and she kind of finally succumbs. They have this like cold twirling scene where it's almost like they're dancing. And I guess it was a lot longer than the original, but it, it made the studio nervous because of the interracialness of it. So they had to cut it down. I want to see the director's cut. I think that would have been really good. Tony Todd had a really funny quote. I wish I would have wrote it down. But he was like, yeah, I guess it made the studio nervous. But you know, black ghost serial killer full of bees didn't. Yeah, that's a great point. Like, see, that's what I'm saying about earlier. They're literally like just saying that black men are stealing white women. And that's the scary thing. Like, no, this dude is murdering people. Yeah, this vengeance demon is uh, all sorts of vengeancy. Who would have thought? Takes her in his arms and carries her to this big stone table. We have a bargain. But I'm afraid. Do you fear the pain or what is beyond? Both. The pain, I can assure you, will be exquisite. As for our deaths, there is nothing to fear. Our names will be written on a thousand walls, our crimes told and retold by our faithful believers. We shall die together in front of their very eyes and give them something to be haunted by. Come with me and be immortal. Wow, he's so romantic. And he lays her down the slab and then he pulls open his shirt and there are a lot of bees. Bees, so many bees. This was the part when I was a little kid and my mom's boyfriend was trying to scare me. This is the only scene I remembered from it is just all the bees coming out of his mouth. They were real bees. I read that Tony Todd had it written into his contract that for every sting he got, he got $1,000. He got $23,000. Good deal. This whole thing seemed like a big hassle, but I mean, it works. It makes you so uncomfortable, effectively so. The whole way they did this thing is just nuts to me. Like the fact that the guy they hired to be their bee wrangler, he built something on top so he could breed the bees. So all the bees that they used were less than 24 hours. So they were essentially like baby bees. Yeah, they looked full grown, but their like venom and stuff hadn't come in. Yeah, they had to be no more than 12 hours old so that the stings weren't actually effective. I'm pretty sure the wrangler told Virginia Madsen that if she was calm, she'd be fine. But if she started like freaking 
freaking out, like the bees would start stinging her. Seems pretty hard not to freak out. Yeah, and Tony Todd had bees in his mouth. Like they built him a prosthetic so that they could sit in his mouth without them crawling down his throat. Ugh. Oh, God. Yeah. Oh, the feeling of bees crawling down your throat. That sounds awful. One of the interviews I was watching where it had people who worked on it, the guy who did the prosthetics, he also did the prosthetics for Hellraiser. That's just a random fact. He said that Tony Todd told him that during one of their takes, he felt that one of the bees got behind the latex and was like crawling like down his cheek towards the back of his throat. Oh my God. At the end of their take, the bee wrangler would get like a specially designed vacuum that could suck up the bees without hurting them. Oh my God. Yeah, this sounds intense. Yeah, I cannot imagine filming this, especially since Virginia Madsen apparently was allergic to bees. Oh my God. How is this woman alive? Well, they had paramedics on set. And the little tiny baby bees. Both Tony Todd and her said they kind of zoned out that day. Like they went to a trance. That was the only way they could get through it. Yeah, I'd be like, this time we're gonna have to hypnotize me. Hypnotize me, please. <laughs> I don't want it. He like has a mouthful of bees and tries to kiss her. And I think the goal is that she's gonna like open her mouth and consume the bees and they will kill her. And that's how she'll die with him. But she doesn't open her mouth because that's gross. And so he's like, fine, you won't kiss me. I'm gonna kill this baby. That's just the most insane reaction to someone rejecting you. I will kill this baby now since you won't make out with me. Somebody has to be a sacrifice so that people will start believing in Candyman again. And it's either going to be her or the child. What the hell did baby Anthony do? He's just a little baby. How effective would that be if you think Candyman's killing babies? That's going to bring your story like up into people believing. Well, let's just say he did without him actually doing it. But honestly, I think it's a trap. Like I think that had probably always been his plan because at this point, if she were to die up there, there would be no witnesses. Whereas if she dies in the bonfire, with the baby. Better story. Plus that scene was incredible. She passes out. Candyman grabs the baby. When she wakes back up, that is when she sees the picture of, I guess you could interpret it as maybe she's the reincarnated version of the white lady he was in love with. But honestly, it just looks like like a white blonde lady. It doesn't necessarily look like her. So I wonder if she's just interpreting it that way. Yeah, it kind of gave me the same vibes as like in Fright Night. It's like, oh, maybe she just really looks like this girl that you were in love with and now that's why you're so fixated. I don't think it's ever implied that it is her. If it's supposed to be about belief and belief is what's like fueling him and maybe starting to infect Helen, maybe she can't really see this image until she she believes it's real. Like I wonder if it's not real, but because she believes it, that's what she sees. Oh, maybe. Because she doesn't really see all the pictures of Candyman either until she really believes in him. Like when she gets back, she finally sees them. So she knows the baby's gone. She just hears the baby. And she realizes that Candyman, like a dick, has put the baby in the bonfire that hasn't been lit yet. Oh, did we even bring up the bonfire? I don't think we brought that up, did we? Oh, okay, yeah. We should probably talk about... Earlier in the movie, when Jake is taking Helen to the bathrooms to quote-unquote find Candyman, they pass, like, it's a huge pile of, like, wood and chairs and stuff. And he says, oh, we're gonna use this to have a bonfire. And that's kind of all they say about it. But it's there the whole time. So Helen hears the baby coming from the unlit bonfire. Yeah, it looks like the big burning man statue. She goes into the wood pile after it. She still has the hook in her hand that she tried to attack Candyman with. Right as she's almost all the way under and all you can see is the hook, Jake looks out the window and sees a hook and goes, Candyman's in there. And then gets everyone in the neighborhood to get together to kill Candyman. That was very smart on Candyman. He's just been framing her the whole time. He's doing it again. 
Helen scrambles through this wood pile until she can find the baby. At this point, the neighbors are coming out. And I think as she gets to the baby, they like pour gasoline all around it. And then they light it on fire. So she has the baby. She doesn't realize about the fire yet. But then Candyman comes up behind her and grabs her and is like, we're gonna all die together. We're a big happy family again. He tries to stop her from getting out, but she fights back against him. The fire at this point is roaring. So she stabs him with like a burning stick and then she waddles away. Beam falls on her, catches her completely on fire, but she's still able to scramble out with the baby. The baby's fine. She gets the baby out. People run up and try to put her out because she is head to toe on fire and she dies. Saves the baby, but plays the white savior role quite well. I feel really terrible for Helen. It just, ugh. God, what a, what a terrible death. Like, I'm glad she saved the baby. She pretty much kills him. She, like, burns to death in that fire. Her death is pretty brutal. But at least she saved that baby. When it looks awesome, just on screen, looks incredible. And I don't think they really realize what's going on for a minute, because it takes them a minute to respond, the crowd of people. They're absolutely stunned that they see a white lady crawling out of the fire. And they're probably like, damn, she was hiding in there with the baby the whole time? Why didn't we look? Why didn't we check the big stack of wood? I think you see Jake look back at the fire and you see Candyman's, like, corpse. And then there's a bunch of bees that erupt from it. Fire bees. And I like that they do imply that they have all seen Candyman in there and dying so that they don't just think Helen was some crazy woman terrorizing them. I wonder if he if he wouldn't have stayed dead if they didn't see him and, like, the urban legend die for them. All his power is gone, and so maybe that is what really kills him. Oh, is them not believing in him anymore. Yeah. I find it really interesting that an aspect of Candyman is that he was an artist. Artists have this big thing where they they want their legacy to live on past them. And it reminds me a lot of like Candyman and the fact that he takes power from people believing in him. And when people doubt him, that's what takes away his power power because artists have this thought of like i want to live on past the time i'm dead and artists are actually usually remembered more fondly when they are dead i don't think anyone's remembering him very fondly though they just think he's committing a bunch of murders no that does bring up an interesting point though just the the metaphor that maybe they were trying to make there Helen's funeral happens. There's like no one there because she's a murderer. All her friends are dead. Bernadette would have showed up. Goddamn Trevor's mistress is there. Yeah, that's a little bizarre. Then all the residents of Caprini Green show up to pay a homage. Yeah, the whole neighborhood shows up. It's really interesting because Candyman calls the people of Caprini Green his congregation. And now it's kind of like the um, residents are now Helen's congregation. They're at the altar of Helen, their new white savior. Oh, no, it's terrible. Oh, yeah. It, I see what they were going for, but... I mean, it's obviously problematic, but it's nice in the fact that at least Anne Marie's like, thanks for saving my baby. You killed my dog, but at least you saved my baby. <laughs> Although they all thought, can- they all saw Candyman. So maybe they all were like, oh, it was Candyman doing it. And Helen, our white savior, saved us. We have to renounce this black man from our community and praise this white lady who murdered him. I I don't know. Another reason that Candyman as a character is kind of problematic is, especially since he's attacking the citizens of Caprini Green, it's like a symbol of this is what happens when you transgress against the white folk. So you guys better not get out of line again. You better stay in shape or else. 
But let's talk about the fun scene that happens after this. Before the funeral ends, Jake takes the hook, because they must have found the physical hook, throws it onto Helen's grave. And so I think it is really a symbolization of the transfer of congregation slash belief from Candyman to Helen. That scene kind of made me laugh when he tossed the hook in the grave. How indestructible was that casket? Also, how do you think everyone else reacted who was already there at the funeral? Like, how did Trevor react? What is this? Was that her murder weapon? We cut back to Trevor at his apartment with his new girlfriend, Stacy. And Stacy is very bad at knife safety. It made me so uncomfortable. I don't know why, but the way she was handling that knife. She looked like she was going to cut off one of her fingers. She was being so aggressive. Trevor clearly is regretting his decision to uh, cheat on his wife. He misses Helen. Doesn't seem to like Stacy as much. <laughs> Shocker. And then he says, Helen, Helen. Helen, Helen, Helen. And guess who shows up? <gasps> is it Helen? It is, but she's all corpsey oh this God. time. We got burn victim Helen. Yes, so she is essentially the new urban legend slash candy man, and she has come back to take her vengeance on Trevor. She's got a hook as a weapon. She's ready to go. Stacy goes to check on him, and when she opens the door, he is oh so dead. So, so dead. And the movie ends. Yeah, so it's implied that is Helen framing the mistress for murdering? It's just going to be this chain of events all over again? I think it makes sense because she does have a knife in her hand. (sighs) Poor girl. Yep, the end. So that was Candyman. Sure was. It is a good horror movie because of the fact that the creative team behind it is white. They did try, but they didn't quite nail the race dynamic they were trying to without making it problematic. It's a pretty well-structured movie. I love the way it's structured. The acting in it is really good. It's still a pretty good movie. It's just one of those things that you kind of have to deal with the problematic elements. At least it's not as bad as, like, Gone with the Wind. Oh, that's true. Well, that's a very, very different time, so at least we can give them credit for the 90s being... Like, things are still pretty backwards now, but... They tried. And I like the concept behind Candyman. I just think that, yeah, some of the elements, the way they executed it, they come off so problematic, which is why I am very excited for this remake. And I guess they're calling it a spiritual sequel. So it'll be interesting to see what it actually ends up being. They're going to do a much better job in tackling a lot of issues that this movie attempted to tackle but did poorly. I just watched the trailer for it after we watched Candyman. It looks incredible. I'm very sad that they have to keep pushing back the release date. But I think you're right. I think having a black filmmaker and cast and crew, it's going to help a lot where this movie suffered. So I'm very excited for it to eventually come out. I am sad that they're pushing it back, but I'm also really happy they are because I really want to see it in the theaters. I think it'll be good to see at a movie theater if those ever exist again. So let's move into our ratings. So general ratings, one to five. What'd you think of Candyman? I think with talking about it, I changed my rating. I think I'm going to put it higher. I'm going to say a four out of five. I, I liked it. It's interesting. It has its flaws, but it's done really well. Yeah, I, I think I'm about right where you are. I would say 
an eight. And the only reason I don't give it higher is because of the problematic elements of it. But the movie is so well crafted. It's so well directed, so well acted. The music is beautiful. It'll be stuck in your head for, for weeks. I think the cinematography is really good. All the practical effects they did work so well. I think it's got a lot of really good elements. And I think the story overall without the problematic elements is a good story. I love a good fairy tale folklore story, so. And Tony Todd, amazing. Uh, so horror struck rating, Riley, one to 10. How much did this movie scare you? Okay, I'm gonna give it a two. I'm gonna give it one point for the really well done jump scares and one point for having bees in your damn mouth. This movie doesn't really scare me, but the bees do make me very uncomfortable. I'd say like a 1.5. Wow, we're almost at the exact same level of scared. To be fair, my ratings are always all over the place, so. Yeah, I've noticed. <laughs> Briley, what are we watching next week? Okay, we're gonna watch the 2020 film Antebellum. Yay, I'm very excited. Me too. I haven't heard a lot about this movie, but I really like Janelle Monet. From what I understand from the trailer is like a time-bendy mystery kind of movie. So I'm excited to see what that's all about. I remember when it came out, I saw a couple of reviews here and there. I didn't really like read into them. I just saw that it was getting mixed reviews. It's the internet. So is it mixed because the movie is like you could take it or leave it? Or is it mixed because there's a bunch of racists on the internet? I feel like the problem, yeah, with movies like this is, and I remember this happening when Dear White People, the film came out. It's got phenomenal critic reviews, but you look at the user reviews and it's people just complaining that how dare they talk about race in this movie. I want to be a colorblind, quote unquote, white person and not have to think about these things. So I'm kind of assuming that this movie is in the same boat and I'm hoping it's much better than what the user reviews are saying. And just from the trailer, it looks beautifully shot. So just from a, a technical standpoint, I'm very excited to watch this movie. Yeah, even if the story falls flat, at least looks very well crafted. And I'd probably give it a lot of leniency because time travel movies are so difficult. Any sort of like time jumping time travel movies are difficult. So time just makes everything super messy. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Horror Struck. If you want to hear more from us, you can go on over to Twitter or Instagram where we are at Horror Struck Pod, or you can go on over to Facebook where we are at Horror Struck Podcast. If you have any movie recommendations or something that you would like us to check out on a future episode of Horror Struck, go ahead and tweet that at us and give it your very own Horror Struck rating. All right, horror fans, until next time, remember, stay spooky. Bye! Bye.